Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. All right. Well, welcome everyone to our Ask a Chair podcast. I'll be the moderator and my name is Andrew Starnes. I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of Oklahoma, about to be an intern at the Wake Forest University. And I'm here today with Dr. Hamilton from Drexel. Dr. Hamilton, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Rich Hamilton. I am currently the chair of emergency medicine at Drexel University College of Medicine. I've been the chair for 12 years, 12 interesting years. Grew up in West Philadelphia. I started my career at Penn as an undergrad, University of Pennsylvania. Did my med school at Hahnemann University, which is the predecessor of Drexel. And became a Navy flight surgeon after doing my uh, internship year at San Diego Naval Hospital and spent a few years on active duty as a Navy flight surgeon. After that, did my residency in emergency medicine at Jacoby, uh, Bronx Municipal Hospital Center, and then my fellowship in toxicology at Bellevue, NYU, the New York City Poison Center, and was a hybrid fellow. At that time, I was sort of part-time faculty and part-time fellow. After I was in the been in the Navy Reserve the entire time. I was then moved back to Philadelphia and became the director of the Medical College of Pennsylvania Hospital Emergency Center, uh, working for Dave Wagner, which was uh, a great privilege. And in the evolution of the health situation in Philadelphia, Medical College of Pennsylvania, Hahnemann merged. Uh, Medical College of Pennsylvania Hospital eventually closed. The department uh, relocated to Hahnemann University Hospital, and I went became everything from the fellowship director for the TOX program to the emergency medicine program director, and then eventually the chair of the department when Dave Wagner retired. And that seems like yesterday, but it was 12 years ago. <laughs> so you have a varied background with lots of different skill sets. I do, yes. Uh, a uh, jack-of-all-trades, perhaps a master of, of none or few. <laughs> uh, certainly, you've mastered several of them. What do you think led you to take advantage of so many different opportunities? You know, maybe it was being a, uh, a student at Penn. I'm a great admirer of Ben Franklin. I, I can remember when I was growing up, I thought that folks who had that sort of polymath uh, interest and abilities were the most interesting people that I, I met along the way. And so... I always allowed myself to just follow whatever I thought was very interesting to me and dive down the rabbit hole of all sorts of challenges. I think that that allowed for a lot of fun in my career. I I probably, when I advise my faculty nowadays, I tell them, especially with regard to research, don't be like Rich. In other words, keep at a very specific area of interest and keep publishing along those areas. I did not do enough of that, but the truth is, is that I had a blast doing all the things that I was doing, so probably shouldn't apologize for it. Yeah. Well, there are a handful of chairs with specifically previous military experience. How do you think your military experience has shaped your career and decision to pursue such a high leadership position? I was what was called a health profession scholarship person, so basically in medical school on a Navy uh, medicine scholarship. And so my first uh, experience as a physician was as a Navy physician. And I learned an enormous amount about being a physician and being a responsible 
a human being in the Navy and learned it from uh, Navy physicians. And I think what sticks with me from that time period were, were a couple of things. One of them is that in the military, the line between patient and provider is not so bright because you live close to each other, you work near with each other. If you're out at sea, you know, you're passing each other in the hallway, as opposed to, I guess, I suppose in the civilian world where, you know, you might go to the emergency department and then go home and never see your patients morning, noon, and night. So that connection to who you're caring for, I think, was one of the first lessons I learned in the military. The second one, I think, was a very strong leadership lesson, and that was that you could be a very good leader or you can be a very good manager, but you should strive to be a good leader when you find yourself in such a position. And good leaders have great management skills, but they have many other attributes as well. They have the ability to inspire they look, they're forward-thinking, they anticipate problems, communicate well, they're good listeners. I, early on, was taught those lessons from not only by my fellow naval officers, but the, in the Navy, the chief petty officers taught me those lessons, the difference between running the place and leading and allowing people to manage with you and, and for you and then providing them with good leadership. So that was something I always aspired to do, and those lessons I learned early on in the military. Sounds like a good foundation. It was a great foundation. It was, yeah. Well, keeping with this sort of theme of varied interests, one of the things that comes up in your background is that you have this interest in game theory. First, could you give us kind of a brief overview, break down what is it for those of us whose knowledge of these sort of things don't extend beyond the movie A Beautiful Mind. Um, and then how does that how does it intertwine with your role as faculty in emergency medicine as a chair? Game theory is um, not about playing games, right? It's not about how do you win at chess. Uh, game theory is about the analysis of strategies in competitive situations where your choices are critically dependent on the other person's choices, right? So Chess, you know, somebody wins, somebody loses. In real life, uh, game theory reflects the sort of odd conundrums that we're faced with on a relatively regular basis and provides a sort of mathematical analysis of it. So the, the classic game theory demonstration is something called the prisoner's dilemma. The story goes that two criminals have been captured by the police, right? And the police have no evidence against either criminal. And if they both stay silent, they do no time. If one of them rats out the other one, then that person would go free and the person that got ratted out would do 10 years. But if they rat out each other, they only do five years. Right? So that's, the, that's, the, that's what's on the table. And it turns out that game theories would suggest that what will happen is even though it's in the prisoner's best interest to stay silent, they will rat each other out most of the time. In fact, they will rat each other out so reliably that that becomes the, what John Nash described as the equilibrium state of the game, that for the most part, people rat each other out. And it's a combination of downside being too down if they don't, and the upside being too unreliable. 
And there's another game theory problem that gets closer to emergency medicine called the El Farrell problem. El Farrell was a bar in Santa Fe. And you could, you know, karaoke night, you know, re rename it as karaoke night. So if karaoke night is super crowded, it's no fun. If karaoke night is empty, it's no fun. And so when do you go to karaoke night, you know, when it's like just right? What that problem shows that everybody will have an individual approach to it. If everybody said karaoke night was empty last week, I'm going to go this week because nobody goes to it. Or if it was crowded and everybody says, well, it's too crowded, I'm not going this week, then there will be no steady state. There will be no uh, reliable predictor. But what happens is each individual comes up with their own strategy. Well, reading about those problems, I have an interest with math and recreational math mostly. I started thinking about the emergency department and emergency department overcrowding. And I had noticed in my career that no matter what we did, the emergency department was overcrowded. Right? So we got in various places that I've been, built bigger EDs, overcrowded. Uh, vertical spaces, still overcrowded. Different size waiting room, overcrowded. Fast track, overcrowded. Why is it that no matter what we do, it's overcrowded? And so I started studying this and connected with some real experts on game theory, and we devised a, a research project that used a survey method to reinforce a game theory analysis. And basically what we discovered was that emergency department overcrowding is the Nash equilibrium of the U.S. healthcare system. That is to say, folks have such difficult access to their primary care doctors when they need it and when they want it, that as long as we continue to provide top-notch care 24-7, 365, we will constantly pull into the emergency department everybody who is seeking to individually optimize their own health. And that sounds like, you know, a horrible conclusion to throw out there for all of emergency medicine. Like, you know, keep at it, but it'll still be overcrowded. But it really organized my thought process to realize that the, the, the goal was not to create a pristine emergency department with empty waiting rooms and what have you. The goal was to take care of as many people as possible, as well as you can, as fast as you can. And so that, I think drive certain things like pull till full, you know, and what have you, anything that you can do to get more patients seen and what have you. In an odd way, it adds to the chaos. <laughs> but game theory helped me think about things like that. We did a project on the smallpox vaccination program. At one point, everybody was going to get revaccinated for smallpox. Many healthcare providers said, no, thank you. I don't want to get vaccinated to smallpox. And game theory would suggest that not everybody needs to be vaccinated against smallpox to disincentivize terrorists from using smallpox. Now, I don't know that terrorists have smallpox, but the point is the same thing works with the flu shot. You do not need every single human being to get the flu shot to reduce the spread of influenza. And so game theory studies whether you say yes to the flu shot and I say no, and that happens with a certain probability and a certain number of people then there will be an equilibrium point at which the flu, generally speaking, is reduced. Not everybody gets the flu shot. And even though it's in everyone's best interest for everyone to get the flu shot, it demonstrates what we know, which is 
folks make up their own mind, you know, and, and that can determine the outcome of certain healthcare things. Well, with that kind of unique perspective, which certainly is, is fascinating to listen to, I think you'd be a, a fantastic person to ask, what is kind of the biggest change that you've seen in emergency medicine since graduating uh, from the University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, so that goes back a ways. I mean, you're talking about, if I look back over 30 plus years, I can remember early on when I was in your shoes, Andrew, that we spent a lot of our time taking procedures, approaches, thought processes that were elsewhere in the hospital, be it the OR, office practices, anything, and making a case for why we could do them in the emergency department. And that goes to everything from the use of paralytics to procedural blocks that gave birth to bedside ultrasound. Those were the early days where you would literally be on the anesthesia service as part of your emergency medicine internship. You'd do your block on anesthesia and you would say, you know, how come I can't do a uh, femoral nerve block? You know, I, I just learned how to do it. Why won't they let us use paralytics? That was the first probably good 10, 15 years. And, you know, it's spotty. Some places they did better than others. But that was the first 10, 15 years, I think, was spent pretty much making a valid case for whatever you could do anywhere else in medicine, you could do in the emergency department. I would say the last 10 years have been very focused on an evidence-based approach to say just because we could do it, should we do it? That's number one. And then really, I think what's most interesting to me most recently is the concept of accelerating knowledge translation. The issue has been that there's a lot of great data out there. There's a lot of great studies. And there are some folks who are practicing the same way that they practiced when they graduated from their residency 10 years ago. And that, I think, is how emergency medicine is very much leading the way now. Especially if you look, you may have seen I'm a very big proponent of what's going on in FOMED and social media. I think that is a huge way for us to accelerate knowledge translation. I guess it's really been all about translation, right? So translation of things done elsewhere and other specialties into the emergency department, and then eventually a very evidence-based eye toward it as to whether you can do it or should do it, and then now really trying to accelerate the knowledge that is the purview of EM and making sure that EM physicians you know, throughout the U.S. and the world, in fact, have access to it. I mean, through, for example, through social media, I can have a conversation with retrieval specialists in Australia about ketamine that I couldn't have 25 years ago when I was using ketamine to intubate an asthmatic. You know, it's amazing. So to me, that if I look back, that's the those are the, the changes that have occurred. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So sort of that broadening of our, of our practice expertise and then the focusing on really expertly using our knowledge sort of lead me to the next question. As we continue to expand what we need to know and, and how we need to know um, about it, many people advocate for uh, increasing uh, fellowships and more fellowship-trained physicians. You pursued a toxicology fellowship after residency so I'd say, how has this fellowship shaped your career? And then if an administrative fellowship had been available, more readily available, 
at that the point that you were at, how would you have pursued that as well? Or um, kind of in hindsight, mm-hmm. um, what's your perspective on uh, on those? Toxicology was a surprise for me when I was a, when I was a resident. I mean, I knew when I was a medical student. Once I had settled on emergency medicine, I knew that after my foray into aerospace aviation medicine, which was my first love, was done, that I would be doing emergency medicine. And I had it in my head that I was going to be an academic emergency medicine physician, although in retrospect, I had no idea what that really meant. I I knew I wanted to work at a university hospital in a city. That's kind of the gist of it. And then when I was, uh, to be truthful, Jacoby, we did our uh, toxicology rotation at New York City Poison Center. And it was a transformational experience for me. Talk about a group of physicians who know everything about everything. My favorite joke is that I did my tox fellowship so I could be you know, brilliant at cocktail parties, discuss all sorts of odd you know, <laughs> trivia and whatnot. But it just seemed like such a fascinating area to study. And at that time, there were so many interesting toxicologic things going on. I mean, we had theophylline overdoses that were amazingly ill, tricyclic overdoses. It was really, really challenging. And then during my fellowship, we had adulterated heroin epidemic, where it was adulterated with scopolamine. Those were crazy cases. So to me, it was a huge surprise. I loved it. I learned in my toxicology fellowship how to be, I mean, from some great people like Bob Hoffman and Lou Goldfrank and many, many mentors, Glenn Henry, guys like that, Susie Vassallo, well, I could keep going. How to be a critical thinker, how to read, how to write, how to teach, I think I learned in my toxicology fellowship. When I interview folks who are interested in toxicology, I first ask them, you know, you have to like toxicology because eventually you'll find yourself studying cadmium at two in the morning and you'll say, why did I do this? But you do have to love the tox part, but it is a absolutely wonderful experience to become an academic EM physician. And I took a track that was not pure toxicology. I still practice toxicology, take call, see patients, do a fair amount of forensic toxicology. It was the foundation for my academic practice and really inspired my academic practice. With regard to admin fellowships, unfortunately, I have advised more than a few people to avoid admin fellowships. Now, I'm going to sound like uh, putting a hole in that boat and sinking the admin fellowship, but when I have residents in my program who would like to do an admin fellowship, I, I suggest to them that they stay and I will hire them as an ED assistant director and that we will give them all the things that they need to learn about administration courses, what have you. But I think that being an assistant director in an emergency department is probably the best first step that you can take if you want to go into administration. And I was having a conversation just yesterday about how so many toxicologists avoid ED operational issues and what have you because they just, you know, they enjoy the science and the pathophysiology and the patients. But if you want to go into ED administration, you do have to be involved in ED operations uh, and you have to find a way to do that. And so I think being an assistant director as a stepping stone or getting involved in an operational issue biting off some projects like that, you will learn, you know, as much as you need to get started. 
there are folks who love admin fellowships. It's a very good protected time. Nowadays, it allows you for a bit of research into operational issues. I guess if I had done an admin fellowship, I would have spent all my time doing game theory and proving that the ED would be overcrowded. I probably would have flunked my admin fellowship as a result, but that's my theory on admin fellowships. I feel like that the amount of on-the-job training that you can get by being an assistant director or things like that is the equivalent. And so in an odd way, since I went from my MedTox fellowship and I'd had prior, you know, sort of leadership experience in the Navy, I was the medical director for the research and maybe the research acceleration research lab in this, uh, at the centrifuge in Warrenston. So I jumped right into a directorship position right, in, right from fellowship. It's funny you should talk about that because when I remember Lou Goldfrank, when I told him I was going to take a director job, and he said, Richard, Richard uh, your research is going to suffer. And I... <laughs> And I was like, no, Dr. Goldberg, I, I guarantee you I'm going to still publish and write and what have you. And I did, but he was 100% right. It was, it was, it suffered. It was, it's hard to do both. I made a good go of it, but I think that trying to find that path and again, maybe as we spoke about at the beginning, finding too many things to do that were too interesting is, is easy to get distracted along the way. Not so enthusiastic about admin fellowships, super enthusiastic about toxicology fellowships. Even if you go practice, decide you're just going to practice emergency medicine. I would, I would, things like that, I think, are very much worth doing. Great. Speaking of interesting things, you've danced around it. We have to ask about your interest in training astronauts and what you enjoy most about it and how's that added to your career? I've had that privilege almost from the beginning. After I became a Navy flight surgeon, I was assigned to the Naval Air Development Center and did aeromedical research. It was just a blast. We had the Navy's centrifuge. We had a thermal stress lab of hypo and hyperthermia. We had an injection tower where we man-rated and studied physiologic effects of ejections an interesting time, published a lot of technical reports. Unfortunately, some of these technical reports don't get to the literature, but did a lot of writing and publishing on, on these issues. And early on, I got to work, the first uh, astronaut I got to work with uh, is a guy named Jim Bajan. Jim is from Philadelphia. He was an engineer at Drexel, interestingly enough. And after the Challenger accident, Jim was led the way in designing safety features for the space shuttle, which I got to be a part of doing the testing. And so he was fanta- is a fantastic guy. Again, somebody who, you know, the day seems to be longer than 24 hours for, for Jim. I flew with Winston Scott, Slick, this is call sign, and also worked with him at the Naval Air Development Center before he became an astronaut. He was also a guy that had, you know, boundless energy and interests. And then I became a DOD support flight surgeon for NASA launches, which also I got to meet astronauts along the way. And so all of that experience led to uh, working with the NASTAR Center, which interestingly enough is lo- located not far from the old Navy Warminster uh, centrifuge. And when Virgin Galactic went on its path of developing the commercial astronaut program, they said, you know, the ticket is about $250,000. The typical astronaut person 
is, you know, in their 30s or 40s, super physically fit, a lifetime of physically fit, and very much aeronautically adapted. The person that can buy a ticket is generally over the age of 50, maybe he's had too many donuts and, you know, been on the road as a businessman, and we're not sure that they can tolerate the G-forces to go you know, into, into space. And Virgin Galactic does what's called a suborbital flight. So G-forces are fairly manageable, but a little bit higher, a good, well, in some areas, a good bit higher than your average carnival ride. Your carnival ride might get you up to three Gs very briefly. And these go up to about six. So they turned to us and said, you know, you, can you help us go through your training and make sure that these folks can get, get into space? And so, sure, we'll take a look at it. <laughs> and, you know, then we started doing things like, wow, can people with pacemakers go into space? Can 85-year-olds with arrhythmias go into space? Can people with coronary artery disease go into space? And that project was super interesting to start looking at and really analyzing a group of people who no one had very thought about in terms of enduring the physiologic effects of high Gs. And it was very successful, enormously successful. We were able to, we made some decisions about who couldn't and who could. And we had a very collaborative group. You could not imagine a more motivated individual than somebody who spent $250,000 to get a ride on BG's spaceship. But they were very willing participants. And found some odd things that folks who are likely to have G-induced loss of consciousness tend to be younger, thinner, fitter individuals, and that folks who are somewhat older and maybe a little less fit and maybe ever so slightly hypertensive did fine. Why is that? Well, when the G-forces push the blood down into your legs, if you're physically fit, your venous capacitance in your legs is huge, right? Your blood vessels dilate when you're running. That's not good at six Gs. It's great at one G in a marathon. Whereas if the pipes harden a little bit, less blood flows to the legs perhaps, and you know more blood continues to flow into the CNS, and those folks are less likely to have G-induced loss of consciousness. Fascinating things like that we discovered. Along the way, I got to work with my favorite astronaut, which was Buzz Aldrin, who was in his early 80s when we were doing training. And everybody else got into the gondola of the centrifuge and they were wild-eyed. And Buzz got in there like, you know, he was getting in his car to drive to work. <laughs> the G-forces came on and came off and he would make note and make observations and what have you. And I thought, man, this guy really is like, you know, he really is a spaceman, you know what I mean? Like, he's, he's the real deal. And he was a wonderful human being. I learned a lot from those folks. They're all engineers to a person. They're all engineers or have an engineering background. Engineers are a great group of people to work with. You put an idea out to an engineer, the first thing they do is stress test it and try to break it. That's common in engineering. That's not an insult to anybody to say, you know, that's not going to work. They rehearse everything. They rehearse everything. It's a great lesson for medicine, right? In other words, the next time you go to intubate Andrew and you can't put the tube in for whatever reason, if that's a surprise to you, you haven't really thought about it. You haven't practiced, you haven't rehearsed. An astronaut's approach, like you'll see nowadays, is that you assume that some percentage of the time 
X is not going to work. And so you have a checklist that you run through and you go to Y. And when Y doesn't work, you go to Z. And then you know when X, Y, and Z aren't working, that usually means that condition A, B, or C are present. As long as you have paper and imagination and time, you can create all these scenarios and rehearse them so that when you're actually in an emergency, you have normalized that experience so much that it looks like, you know, you're smooth as butter, your silk is, you know, you're just at ease. And that's something I definitely learned from working with astronauts. Chris Hadfield has a great book about that. Thinking like an astronaut, something along those lines, I forget the exact title, but it's Chris Hadfield, he's a Canadian astronaut. It's a great book to read for EM physicians because things that we do now, things that your generation of EM physicians really focus on, like simulation and rehearsing and doing high challenge, low stakes, right? So you can't intubate. If you can't intubate in the sim center, that's a big challenge, but it's low stakes. Right? If you can't intubate in a trauma bay, that's high stakes. Those types of things, I think, are things that we saw, you see in aviation and aerospace that are a big part of medicine now, checklist manifesto, that's about as old as there are airplanes having a checklist. Things like near-miss reporting, they also come from aviation. So those lessons, I think early on, exposure to simulation and how to do it and what have you, were very formative. I didn't know it at the time, but they are very formative in my career as an academician and as an educator. Look at folks that are struggling. I think back to being in flight school and you know struggling with certain landing patterns or what have you. And you know what do you do? You go to the simulator, you run through it a hundred times, you throw all the curveballs to yourself at that point, and then when you get to the real situation, you just feel like, wow, situation normal. <laughs> So those are the lessons I learned along the way. Was it, and work with some just outstanding people, people that you literally cannot believe the depth of talent. I've been with some of the astronaut aviation folks, and they literally go from their jobs to playing guitar at a bar, you know, at night just for fun. Your passion for what you do is obvious and contagious, and you've done many things. We're really appreciative of you sharing your time with Rams at SAEM to... Um, help us know more about what you've done and gives direction for what we could do as well. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. I love seeing people excited about emergency medicine. Your questions, I think, were very thought-provoking and allowed me to reflect on the path I took, odd as it may seem. But I think the lesson, I think like we talked at the beginning, the, the lesson for everyone is that if it interests you, it's probably interesting. And so throw yourself at it and pursue it. And Enjoy the journey. You know. Well, thank you, Doctor. You're welcome. <laughs>